I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is Agents of Impact, a series of interviews with changemakers in and out of impact investing. Catalytic capital, we believe, is essential, but it is not even close to being nearly sufficient or enough for the impact that we see. That's Deborah Schwartz, Managing Director of Impact Investments for the MacArthur Foundation. I spoke with Deborah about catalytic capital, getting enterprises the kind of financing they need, and how technology is driving down costs for impact solutions. Let's jump right in to our conversation. Welcome, Deborah Schwartz, to the Agents of Impact podcast. We're delighted to have you. Thanks, David. It is terrific to be here. Deborah, you are the Managing Director of Impact Investments at the MacArthur Foundation in Chicago. You've been at this for quite a while, um, and you long enough that your Twitter handle is Impact Banker. Um, so welcome, and um, we want to dig in to your work at MacArthur in general, but in specific, the Catalytic Capital Consortium, which you have pulled together with the Rockefeller Foundation and Omidyar Network as well, and which I will say in full disclosure right at the top, is a sponsor of Impact Alpha's catalytic capital coverage, um, which we have dug into uh, for for a number of years now with MacArthur and and C3 uh, support. So thank you for that. And let's get, we got that out of the way. So now we can dig in. this catalytic capital work, I know, is the culmination of a lot of thinking you've done over over decades, really, about where uh, impact investing capital can be most effective or where it is really needed. And so maybe just get, you know lay out the broad strokes of 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 what you're what you've learned and what you're trying to do now. So you know, I came into this world of impact investing and catalytic capital through a couple of different channels, but one was investment banking in public finance, uh, working with municipalities and hospitals, helping them raise capital in the bond markets, but then also working with small nonprofits, and I mean small social welfare organizations, working uh, with the juvenile courts, abuse and neglect division, Um, and having to figure out, did they need to sell their building and what kinds of um, benefits could they afford to give their social workers and how could we make the budget whole? So kind of very much on the ground, understanding that just nuts and bolts uh, that go into building a sustainable nonprofit enterprise or building um, a solid municipal uh, enterprise and really thinking about it from the standpoint of what makes for um, impact through the lens of mission and money, right? How do you bring those things together to create enterprises that deliver results? And um, it was very fortuitous to land at the MacArthur Foundation, thanks to actually a a, a referral from a former investment banking colleague. Um, And I actually spent the first five years uh, working with the president of the foundation, Adele Simmons, and helped with speeches and special projects and things like that. And I had never heard of an impact investment. Of course, that term wasn't coined until 2007. And we're talking 1995, way back a million years ago. I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'd never heard of that. And I'd never heard of a program-related investment, which, of course, had been pioneered by the Ford Foundation in the late 60s. And MacArthur was one of the very, very first foundations, along with Packard to start experimenting with program-related investments, or PRIs as we call them. And that work had begun in the early 80s, shortly after MacArthur was established. But again, I I had 
spent several years in public finance. I'd been very interested in nonprofit finance. I had never heard of a PRI until I came to MacArthur. And that was a bit of a revelation because all of a sudden my interest in this intersection between um, mission and money and markets and how to, you know, how do you uh, bring capital to the social sector? A lot of things for which there just wasn't language. We didn't have the term social enterprise yet in common use at the time. Impact investing, again, was not yet coined. I had this just way of thinking about things that had made me pretty unusual in business school. Um, it made me pretty unusual, I think, in the nonprofit sector. And then suddenly I discovered there was a small group of folks at MacArthur and elsewhere experimenting um, with this tool. And just to be clear, just to the listeners who haven't, uh, probably anybody who's listening to this podcast has, has heard PRI or program-related investments before, but they are ways to expand the arsenal of tools that a foundation in particular has to make investments along with with grants. Um, and there's tax rules around what can and can't count, which we can leave for another time. But they basically give you an ability to support all kinds of new strategies that need investment capital, not just not just grants for, for reasons um, that you will now explain to us. What did that allow you to do? Well, they, they really grew up in response to the blight and the terrible redlining and racial discrimination that left so many communities in places like Chicago and other cities uh, devastated by the time we get to the the late 1960s and 1970s when this PRI tool first comes on the scene. And it really became a way for an organization like a foundation that has a fiduciary duty uh, to be able to do investments that really were a little bit out of the box, to go into a community that had been starved for capital, where there was no data about whether or not people could or couldn't pay back their loans, and to be able to bring capital and hopefully bring market activity and opportunity, inclusive opportunity, back to life. Um, so that started in Chicago, in South Shore, uh, with Shorebank which was one of the very first um, organizations to become something later known as the Community Development Financial Institution. And Another acronym th that Impact Alpha readers know, a CDFI. Exactly. And they had a bit of a moment last year, right, that's ongoing, but was sort of one of these uh, you know, overnight successes that was actually 40 years in the making, right? And, Indeed. and Indeed. Um, while Shorebank is no longer around, there are so, so many uh, organizations that drew inspiration and learning from that organization. And um, we saw CDFIs across the country step up and help small businesses that were being left out of the government's PPP program. We can, we can start a tally, David, on how many <laughs> acronyms we'll use in this call. Um, so CDFIs were just, just beginning in the early 80s, and that's where MacArthur started in its impact investing journey. Um, and PRIs were a way for us to provide capital to groups that were coming together to provide home loans, to provide loans to nonprofit organizations, to provide loans that did uh, the um, provided microcredit, the very, very beginning of the microcredit field internationally. And I give um, Paul Lingenfelter, who started the MacArthur program, and Greg Ratliff, who came later, um, so much credit for doing some just brilliant um, risk-taking and making some bold choices and putting bets on organizations that were at the very beginning of that field uh, and many others. And those organizations then 
We're able to take our capital, bring in other resources and grow, recycle the funds, do it again, create ultimately a lot of impact, a lot of leverage, and for us, a sustainable flow of capital. Because what has been interesting about the PRI work that we've done, and now we've expanded to include, yes, another acronym, MRIs, mission-related investments, which don't meet all the tax code requirements of the PRIs, but are very useful in fields like around climate change um, solutions, where the um, requirements for charitable use are not always um, as easily managed. Um, What we now have is a recycling effect. So the foundation has deployed or committed close to $700 million in impact investments over nearly 40 years of work. But the capital that we're putting out each year is more and more capital that is on a round trip. It's gone out. It's been used in the field. It's generated impact. It's come back to the foundation. We bring in earnings as well. They're not um, earnings that we're striving to absolutely maximize. But they're significant enough uh, that we are creating full capital preservation plus a bit of a margin above that. And so unlike a grant, the impact investing work can become over time self-sustaining. And we think that's a really uh, interesting aspect of it within the context of the philanthropic uh, toolbox. Okay, so as for foundations, it's good because the money comes back and you can recycle it, make put it to use again. And for the recipients, you're saying also, I think that getting an investment as a grant can be helpful. As you said, it can um, be part of some kind of capital stack that maybe helps bring in other investors um, that shows that builds a credit record or a track record of repayment and that sort of thing. So, in fact, some folks will say, hey, you know, you're a foundation. Why not just give it all away as grants? In some cases, even for the recipient's point of view, getting an investment may be better than getting a grant. I I do believe that because if you've got an enterprise that does have um, a pathway to financial sustainability and and they're going to need to bring in financial capital uh, in whole or in part as part in order to operate, um, they can't prove that they're credit worthy if you give them a grant. They can only prove that they're credit worthy if you lend them the money or you invest the money. Um, We also work with a lot of for-profit enterprises, and I think this is where it gets complicated uh, when you're working within the framework of the IRS code and charitability and all of that. But we have found a way to make equity investments in funds that are doing venture and private equity. Um, And I think it is appropriate that we have the tools that we need that are matched to the kinds of enterprises we're working with. Well, okay. So you said that you do get a return. It's not you, but you don't set out to maximize that return because, as you mentioned, there's tax rules and whatnot about uh, charitable intent and charitable purposes. So foundations are a little bit of a of a special case in that the the capital is there originally for charitable purposes, but they're starting to become other sources now of catalytic capital as well, and sort of has become part of the whole kind of innovative finance world where folks are trying to put deals together, blended finance, that sort of thing, that might be able to um, kind of unlock some of these knotty 
financing problems, as you said, for low income populations or in untested areas, new, new, you know, high risk uh, areas or, or new geographies or new kinds of business models. So just tell us a little bit about sort of what the current landscape of catalytic capital looks like, who, who might provide it and what kinds of things it might be used for. So I do, I do think I want to just stress that program-related investments are one piece of the impact investing landscape, and they are typically used in uh, the mode of catalytic capital. And so for MacArthur, that nearly $700 million of work that we've done, we would consider that by and large all within that, um, what the, the um, impact management project calls the contributing to solutions part of the capital spectrum and within that, the catalytic capital, but a piece of the puzzle. The C, just to get another acronym in there, you want to be the C for contribution in the ABCs of impact management. Avoid harm, benefits to society, C to contribute. So of all the acronyms, that's probably the easiest one for us (laughs) uh, to manage. So I just want to frame it that way just to remind us that, you know, impact vesting itself exists, obviously, across a spectrum, and it's getting complicated, right? We have ESG, we have impact investing, we have catalytic capital, we have a lot of different approaches, and there's places where things are blurring and overlapping and converging, and I think that's a a good thing. Um, I think it also tells you something about the urgency of finding solutions around climate change, and I think around the increased urgency and intention that people feel around combating racial inequity and to build a more just, inclusive uh, form of capitalism. So I think um, the catalytic capital piece, uh, in our view, is really necessary. It's necessary when there's innovation, as you've mentioned, when there's things that don't have a track record um, and that are just too risky for other investors. I think catalytic capital is also necessary to inclusive growth and markets because we know that inherently uh, catalytic capital is about bridging gaps and bringing more people and places and products and organizations into the reach of the financial market. Um, And catalytic capital is really essential when we're trying to make things more investable. And you mentioned blended finance and some of these other situations. There are markets, there are activities in the investing world that are just a bridge too far for an investor that may be heavily regulated in some way um, or that is looking for very large blocks of money to move. And so we often have to engineer intermediating structures uh, that allow for risk mitigation, that allow for the um, right sizing of investments, that allow for the right expertise to be brought to bear, and if necessary, to blend um, the risk return profile to a place that might work for different investors along the spectrum. So that's the blended finance um, part of the puzzle. It, it's interesting, Deborah, because, it, you know, I, I, you've been at this a long time. I've only been this, at this, you know, a, a few years, but I do remember when these kind of investments would routinely be criticized as concessionary or below market or subsidies or market distorting, or whole litany of kind of critiques that sort of made them seem like, you know, 
I don't know, not serious or somehow somehow like um, kitty investments, and that the big boys generally of of finance um, were you know were looking for you know you know real returns, and this was somehow sort of playing around the edges. I do think, and part of it is, uh, frankly, the, the the work you've done in the Catalytic Capital Consortium to kind of rebrand it from a sort of a burden of, of concessionary to a, a privilege of actually being able to put together the most interesting deals, the most innovative kind of structures, you know, attacking the, the most intransigent problems. I don't know. Is that, you know, too rosy? Are, are you seeing that there's now kind of a, an, an up? an uplift or an upsurge of interest in not only um, being catalyzed, but also in being catalytic? Yeah, absolutely, David. Um, I do think that since we launched the consortium formally in 2019, in early 2019, um, the kind of inbound queries that we're receiving and Omidia and Rockefeller, our colleagues there, um, and just the conversation about it, what we've seen in your own uh, community of impact investors that are um, sharing their stories on Impact Alpha. Um, we're definitely seeing um, rising interest around the world, and it's not coming from all the usual suspects and places. So again, you mentioned before, you know, foundations, we sort of have this niche. We've got very unusual philanthropic capital. We don't have to pay it back to other investors. It gives us extraordinary opportunity, if we wish, to be flexible um, and to take unusual kinds um, of risks and to tread into markets and areas that others are leaving behind. So what's really exciting are, are, are many wonderful partners and colleagues in the family office arena, from Blue Haven to Kenyard to Candide and others. Um, we're seeing corporations creating their own in-house catalytic type venture funds. Um, we're certainly seeing, we've, we've always worked with a lot of financial institutions, particularly in the U.S. affordable housing and community development space, where those institutions are motivated in part by their Community Reinvestment Act obligations. Um, but we're seeing lots of creativity um, across the board. And, you know, we're not looking with the C3 initiative, we're not looking to ask every investor to be 100% in the tank with catalytic capital, because frankly, catalytic capital, we believe is essential, but it is not even close to being nearly sufficient or enough for the impact that we seek, right? The whole point is we need capital from across that spectrum. We need catalytic capital that's coming in, perhaps taking really early risk. Maybe it's helping scale up a promising fund manager, uh, like some of the folks that we're supporting through the C3 initiative, like Impact America or the Alive Ventures. You've, you've covered them all, but I think uh, the point is we can come in early, we can help build track record and help bolster scale. But over time, those funds are going to go on to raise subsequent funds. And many of them will be looking to raise much larger amounts of money. Um, and so we're paving the way for them to make that journey to those other kinds of investors. And we've seen this already. The foundation invested 20 years ago in the first fund of Sustainable Jobs Fund, or SJF Ventures, as it's known. Well, they're now, I think, on their fourth or fifth fund. Um, our, our help is in, in that way is not needed today. They're well-proven. They have the data. I think there's another example that is germane, which is uh, DBL, uh, used to be called Double Bottom Line. And um, they were had a thesis around local job creation, I think, in the Bay Area here. And um, among the companies they invested in was something called Tesla. That's correct. 
And so those are examples, you know, early pioneers in what we now call kind of what are make up the impact capital managers universe. You know, they're seeking strong financial returns and strong, meaningful impact. Um, But even those groups, when they got started, I mean, the idea of a triple bottom line fund in 1999 that would have environmental impact, economic uh, impact in its communities and a financial return, that was just an incredibly novel idea at that time. Hence, catalytic capital. But it's, it's also an example of how some things can scale, build a track record, and basically move beyond the capital gap, that it's transient. And then we have other things, uh, like many forms of affordable housing, where if you're serving very low-income seniors and veterans and the formerly homeless and folks with mental illness, it may not be the case that the enterprise is ever going to completely um, leave behind the need for catalytic capital. Now, um, it is, in some cases, a form of subsidy, right, where we, if we take a 1% return on a 10-year unsecured loan, that is a concession. And the difference is, for us, we're impact first. So we can say to ourselves, look, if this is the impact that we're seeking, we want to be disciplined, we want to be rigorous, but we also want to be flexible and understand that sometimes a longer duration is needed, sometimes a greater level of risk is needed, i.e. no collateral, no, no guarantee, no security interest, and sometimes a lower level of return. What we're trying to do through the C3 initiative on the grant-making side, and there was an announcement today, as you know, about um, the, the first wave of grants through something that we're calling building the evidence base. What we're trying to do, though, is to help the catalytic capital investors who have experience and those that are looking to get into the game have as much information as possible to be as smart as possible about how to make these choices and how to calibrate their investments and how to make sure we're being efficient and we're being effective. Well, let's get into that uh, specific work that you mentioned because you've teed it up nicely for for some examples from the portfolio. So as you mentioned, MacArthur had some investments that came back into the treasury, I suppose, and that you then got an allocation to make a bunch of catalytic investments um, and put out a, a, a call and, and I think got a tremendous response and and selected um, something close to a dozen that you've made, um, I think to date, about 110 million, maybe it's going up a little higher, of, of catalytic investments. So, so um, you know, what did you find from the scan of the landscape, as it were, and then also what did you um, what did you decide to put some some money down on? Um, well, we were really excited about the response to the, the the invitation that we put out in the beginning of 2019, which I have to admit now feels like, and it was only two years ago, it feels like a long time ago. Um, we had, I think, 120 responses. Um, it was very, very tough to choose among them. Um, we uh, we're, we're very excited because we also saw just the diversity of uses and, and kind of use cases for catalytic capital. So I mentioned before, you know, one of the big divisions is sometimes we're talking about transient need gaps where we can come in and help something in this early stage, prove out scale up and move on. And then we have other situations where we have a fund manager that is maybe focused on funding very, very early stage innovative technology in the climate uh, space. 
Um, I'm thinking of Prime Impact Fund here, for mm-hmm. example. Um, well, the manager is going to be well-proven and established, but the work they are doing is like focused like a laser on a really key capital gap, the valley of death in the technology commercialization arena. So it's not clear that that model is ever going to not need some amount of catalytic capital. So there's different ways that folks are using it, um, different challenges that are at work and part of what we're trying to do in sharing the portfolio of examples. um, And we have examples in other parts of our work as well. Um, And what we're really excited about is just a growing community of folks sharing those examples, learning from them, uh, teasing out the models and the insights, you know, Again, when when is um, a first loss layer big enough? When is an interest rate too low? I mean, how to think about doing catalytic capital in a manner that is really informed and efficient and effective? Because we we're basically a practice that's been around for a long time, arguably forty plus years, but we don't have a lot in the way of. Um, um, explicit principles and guideposts and tools. So the grant making side of our initiative is really intended to build out that knowledge base, help investors become more equipped, more aware uh, in community with each other. Um, and then the investment side of what we've been doing is really intended to both inspire and inform. The um, it's interesting what you said uh, because you know like take Prime for example we, we everybody loves that example because they did take what were considered risk risky bets on on early stage companies some of those companies now have gotten quite a substantial follow on funding from very very you know maybe um, green but but fairly mainstream investors. Um, but I wonder whether there's other, you know, whether there's not, it's not just all rosy stories. There Are there cases where, you know, catalytic capital doesn't work? We've heard, for example, you know, that in fact, in some um, off-grid electric applications in Africa, um, very rural and, and remote, you know, where there's guarantees, even so the investors, the lenders don't necessarily want to come in. Or in other cases, you know, where where the catalytic capital, you know, is not the, the gap, but but really it's just maybe a bridge too far. Well, I think that's what our learning agenda, David, is really all about, is to tease out not only what have been the keys to success and leverage and impact. And yes, I think of um, in the prime impact case, case the uh, Lilac company that is working on a, a very favorable way of extracting lithium. This looks very, very promising. And um you know, we're, we're very excited to see in the Impact America portfolio as that is taking shape, um, recent news about how their biggest uh, investment, Maven, um, is opening salons in Walmart stores in Texas and elsewhere and sort of, you know, really living out this thesis that if we get the capital to underrepresented entrepreneurs and underrepresented fund managers, we can really help uh, build agency and economic uh, power. So I think there are some really great success stories. There is no doubt uh, plenty to learn from what hasn't worked. Um, that's why I think this set of research projects that we're, we're funding and that were announced uh, by the new venture fund where we have the pooled uh, grant dollars from the three partners. Um, I think that we're going to we're going to learn a lot from that. 
there is a, a strand of work around advancing practice and practitioner guides that will be developed. And so I think um, we know that folks like you and all the other smart people that are engaging with us will keep our feet to the fire. And we have to do that. We all have to keep our feet to the fire to make sure that we don't just um, look at it all with rose-colored glasses because um, we've seen funds that get stood up and, and nobody comes because the terms aren't right. Um, and we have seen funds that get stood up and they deploy capital and it's not necessarily with the intended effects. So, um, yeah, we wouldn't pretend for a minute um, that it's, you know, just a slam dunk. But it's all super interesting. You mentioned um, the uh, mission related investments as well as program related investments. I know that that's a little bit of an arcane, you know, tax categorization uh, question, but it does actually have some pretty big implications in the sense that the, the endowments of, fa- of foundations, as it were, um, is generally speaking a bigger pot of capital than the, the grant side, program side, where the PRIs come from. And in fact, MacArthur just made an interesting announcement um, about its own endowment. The thing I think that caught a lot of people's attention was a kind of divest, invest strategy on fossil fuels, um, which sort of is part of a a sort of a drumbeat that includes Harvard and and other endowments lately making those kind of moves. But what what actually uh, became interesting as well was a commitment to move the asset management of of at least, I think, 20% of the assets to be invested with firms led by managers of color and or women by 2024. So I wonder whether you're thinking that uh, maybe the catalytic part of the of, of your portfolio is now actually um, um, had some influence on the on the bigger portfolio of the whole foundation. Um, well, first of all, just to make things a, a little bit more complicated, but actually uh, complete in this picture, um, we have an allocation of 500 million to impact investments at MacArthur, which is an allocation from the endowment. Um, And the bulk of it has been program-related investments over the years, but we also make mission-related investments within that $500 million allocation. And that's been very useful in certain circumstances, working with certain kinds of for-profit companies or with environmentally-focused solutions where it doesn't line up very neatly with the IRS tax definition of charitability. And that is, of course, our guidepost for PRIs. So... Um, we do PRIs and MRIs out of the same impact investing pool. And the work that you're describing and the announcement that we're really excited about that you're uh, flagging about both divest invest on the climate front and, and working to expand our engagement with underrepresented managers, that is all happening in our regular investments portfolio, but none of that is MRIs. So I just want to be really clear that PRIs and the MRIs live in the impact investment portfolio. But at other foundations, it might be something different. And that's part of what's confusing, right? So which bucket a foundation chooses to put things in um, is, is up to that foundation. This is why, Deborah, that you get so many calls from other foundations asking you, how do we do this? Because I, I it am, is a little I bit complicated. Doing, I'm doing a presentation tomorrow <laughs> for a whole group of the foundation folks. So, um, and, you know, and we really consider it part of our mission is to be supportive and helpful. And we will gladly speak with folks from any foundation, family office, corporation, any place that is trying to do impact investing of any kind. We are very, very happy uh, to be helpful. But we also hope that some of the materials that we're generating through the grant making, the joint grant making around C3 with Omidyar and Rockefeller, and I should say uh, led ably by program officer at NBF named Emily Duma, 
who is phenomenal. We're really hoping that those materials will be useful to um, a wide group of investors and we fund other kinds of things through our regular grant making as well. Um, we are very excited about the um, announcement that you mentioned and um, proud of a, you know, a very uh, public statement around some things that have been developing for a while um, and that are continuing to grow and deepen. And um, what's really interesting for us is that there are really twin pillars here, right, of dealing with climate change, the energy transition on the one hand, and really leaning in around racial equity, gender equity, and justice. And, and MacArthur's um, mission is a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, and we lead with justice. So those are the which everybody who listens to NPR has has, has heard for it. many years. <laughs> so those are the twin pillars, and have been. If you if you step back and look at our impact investing work, going back all the way to Shorebang in 1983, and the CDFI work, and affordable housing, and early early work on climate and sustainability, and um, and uh, advancing entrepreneurship and, and building more financial inclusion, those two pillars have animated our work from the beginning. You know, sustainability and inclusion. And I think what you're seeing now is opportunity and imperative on the investment side more broadly. Um, so this is going to make for some really wonderful opportunities to compare notes and to be in coordination with each other, which is what we're doing. Um, there are examples in the announcement that you read. There was an investment we made um, with Encourage uh, Capital in India uh, for a, a solar financing vehicle um, a couple of years ago. We certainly have within the C3 portfolio that I've been discussing um, a number of fund managers that we are supporting who are led by people of color. They are led by women. They are led by people who are LGBTQ. So we could be developing the next round of funds that will eventually make the trip <laughs> into the larger investment space, and, and some may not. Um, but the, the big point here is we've got some real alignment and convergence and synergy around these two goals and real clarity um, that we just have to keep doing more. Well, it, it's interesting. Um, you, the, the two pillars, as you say, and also the the round trip or the or the or the progression. People sometimes think, you know, that these kind of opportunities, investment opportunities, you know, sort of just get born, sort of full blown. But in many cases, they were, you know, decades even in the making, with lots of testing and sort of you know hammering out the the details and making sure that that the terms, as you say, are acceptable and and, and attractive to, to, to investors. Um, you know, lots of lots of climate investment. Investments, whether it's um, rooftop solar or anything else, um, you know, are, are not really um, are not really that new. But 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 maybe the amount of capital going into them are new. If you could sort of look in your crystal ball um, of things that are sort of cutting edge or, or innovative or even seen as as risky now, but that are you know on the pathway um, towards um, uh, sort of scaling, you know, may and mainstream capital. You know, what are you kind of working on now that in three, five or 10 years, people are going to think are, are sort of, you know, just the way business, business is done. And maybe that would be a good way to, to leave folks on a high note. So um, where, where would you, where would you see this all going in the next few years? Well, I think some of the areas that kind of really came up for us again and again, through the C3 proposal uh, process that we talked about and the funds that are now in our portfolio. And we're seeing a lot of really interesting work at the intersection of tech 
and health and ag uh, education. We're just seeing some really, really interesting experiments in places like India and Latin America where the, the use of technology is able to drive down costs. It's able to innovate in a way that brings something effective and low cost out into rural communities where just, you know, where you wouldn't have traditional mammography, for example. But there's a company in one of our funds portfolios that has a different type of technology that is possible to run off of a smart Right. So I think um, we're going to continue to see that kind of innovation um, that has this strong social environmental purpose, but also a lot of strong profit potential. Um, and that's going to bring you know, a, a lot of energy and interest and commitment. I think you're going to see the same thing in this incredible drive to net zero right, where technology is going to come and intersect. And I think the big challenge in front of us is for that energy transition to be a just transition, right, to be inclusive. And we are uh, building a whole portfolio um, alongside our C3 portfolio and our Benefit Chicago portfolio. We have a portfolio around climate solutions and, um, you know, and groups in that portfolio that have this very distinct focus on how to make sure communities who have been historically marginalized and underrepresented and under-resourced, that they too can benefit from the upsides um, of the climate transition. So so technology and then this intersection of of climate technology and justice. I just want to leave folks with with that thought that when all of that comes to bear fruit in years to come that they should um, look back at pioneering investors who uh, laid some of the groundwork, including um, you at at MacArthur. So thank you so much, Deborah Schwartz, uh, Managing Director of Impact Investments at the MacArthur Foundation for being with us today and for all of your work. Thank you, David. It's always fun to talk with you. Likewise. That's going to do it for this episode of Agents of Impact. You can read more about Deborah Schwartz, the Catalytic Capital Consortium, and MacArthur's Impact Investments at impactalpha.com. Subscribers to Impact Alpha receive our daily email brief, including deal flow, job postings, and original features, as well as full access to impactalpha.com, agents of impact conference calls, and much, much more. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe. Thanks again to Deborah Schwartz and to our producer, Isaac Sirk. I'm David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. See you again soon.